I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. This podcast invites you to consider real experiences that can set in motion feelings of awe. And where do experiences like that happen? Well, where can't they happen might be the better question. The possibilities are everywhere. From episode to episode, we investigate the natural environment, the built environment, art, history, unsung heroes, and even wonders lost along the way in everyday life, hidden in plain sight, as they say. Essentially, we go wherever thoughtful observation can produce that internal response of wonder. In this episode, we'll contemplate three ancient places and their peoples with help from a guide who is a seasoned journalist, extraordinarily well-suited to tell about such things. She's had a three-decade career writing for National Geographic. But in some ways, Anne Williams is a very unlikely conversationalist, if you consider what she calls her innate shyness. I am a very shy person, and you cannot be that in journalism. And you cannot be that to talk to people like you. So I have to put on a different hat and say you are not allowed to be shy. You have to make yourself into a chatty extrovert. (laughs) Um, So having done that so many times, actually, professionally, I am a lot less shy and a lot less introverted than I used to be. Um, But I still am that at at my core. It sounds like a fake it till you make it story. Is that what it is? (laughs) Sort of, I guess. Just practice it until it comes a little bit more natural to you. I've had my eyes pop just getting to know the length and breadth of Anne's career. Looking back at the stories she's covered, I would have to say doesn't matter whether she's talking about the mysterious statues of Easter Island or the ancient stone ruins of Zimbabwe or that fabulous temple complex in Cambodia, Angkor Wat. Or, as in this podcast, if she's describing King Tut's tomb, well, I would just have to say put that whole business of shyness aside. Quite clearly, she's become a natural, if that's not a contradiction in terms. And if practice in telling these kinds of stories can bring you confidence well, then you can surely also acquire what is called a journalistic instinct. Anne Williams has gone quite instinctively and fearlessly where a lot of big and imposing archaeological stories have taken her. When you have an opportunity to do something that most of us will never have a chance to do, for example, I I think the year was 2005, there you are, it's kind of a dark and stormy night, and King Tut is going to be subjected to a CT scan, and you are present. Are you in your element, or do you have to put on the professional, I'm okay where I am? That evening was very difficult. I was a journalist trying to get the story. There were a lot of different people in the Valley of the Kings. A lot of different news organizations had been invited. There were other people sort of competing for that story, which which was kind of a surprise. You know, when, when you're in a situation like that, you cannot have people say no to you. You cannot not come back with the story. You are just trying to figure out every second of the experience how to make this work. Now, as it turned out, I did not get very often into the trailer where King Tut was being CAT scanned because that was very scientific and it was very, there was very little space. And of course, the photographer had to be there. And I was actually a little cross about that because, you know, I needed to be there. However, the fact that I was outside the trailer and I was putting on my journalist hat meant that I was looking around and I was seeing what was going on. What was going on turned out to be unexpectedly dramatic. Just right, actually, as the backdrop for messing with a mummy. Even if the messing was high-tech, bona fide science, the whole affair took on shades of someone having angered an ancient Egyptian deity or two. So that day kind of began with a photographer, Ken Garrett, who is a wonderful colleague and somebody who has photographed um, ancient Egyptian sites and artifacts many, many times. 
he and I uh, got up and we had a huge lunch because we knew we were going to have to prepare for this thing. It was going to begin after the tourists had left the Valley of the Kings. So, you know, sometime after 5, 5.30 in the evening. And we were going to be going right through the night. So we knew we had to fuel up. And we knew we had to be rested. And I remember sitting out on a patio at whatever hotel we were staying in. And it was a beautiful sunny day. You know, it was January. It was Egypt. It was Luxor. The food was good. We were there. Yay. When we got to the Valley of the Kings, suddenly bad weather started to roll in. And a perfectly sunny, still day turned into this day when the wind was whipping up the dust and just racing down the Valley of the Kings. And there I stood outside the cat scanning trailer and looking up at the sky and seeing it was completely clouded. I mean, uh, there was not one star in the sky, not one. When we finally finished up all of this, and I finally got to talk to Dr. Hawass, and I finally got to go into the CAT scanning trailer. This was in the wee hours of the morning. You know, I, I, I had some words with Dr. Hawass, and, and then he and I had worked together a couple of times. I had covered a number of discoveries he had made, and I remember walking down the stairs to leave the CT trailer, and he just patted me on the shoulder, and he said, it's been great working with you again. And I looked up at the sky, and the clouds had gone away. There was not one cloud in the sky. On the Stars were brilliant like diamonds and the black velvet of the night sky. Orion, which was a constellation that the ancient Egyptians recognized, was hanging over the tomb of King Tut. And I just thought, well, you know, it's been a dark and stormy night, but the stars are out again and all is right. And the ancient Egyptians would call this ma'at, things as they should be, the proper order of things. And so that's the story of the night that King Tut got cat scanned. Yeah, um, if that's what the Egyptians call it, things as they should be, do you have any sympathy with that view? Did you feel that it played out the way it ought to have been that night? I do. I think it's a wonderful philosophy. I mean, I am a very organized, control-freaky kind of person. So to think about the idea of ma'at, things as they should be, you know, I think that's my goal in life, that I, that I just try to make things clean and ordered and cutting through um, just difficult things like a hot knife through butter. The great thing that I bring to the table is I have a very organized mind. That is my happy place. That is where I am comfortable. Well, this is this establishment of <laughs> order, this control, this, uh, I'll tell you what it mirrors for me. When I hear you describe that, the role of a journalist, the role of an editor, you're making a book, you're laying things out in an orderly fashion. This is what the ancient Egyptians did in the face of death. The rituals of preparing the body, the orderliness of the tomb the, before the, the robbers come and, 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 and throw things around. But there is, there is system. There's a belief in system. There's an organization. You're kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you have it being that way constitutionally. I also recognize the value of creative chaos. I was a staff writer at National Geographic for almost 30 years, and I had to be comfortable with that because many of the people at the magazine were hugely creative, but they were a little chaotic. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> And one had to be prepared for somebody to come to your office saying, you know, okay, I, I know we did this yesterday, but, um, but I've had another think and, you know, let's rip that up and do it all over again. 
Well, I want you right now to make some structure and orderliness out of the chaos, the recent chaos of the rumor mill surrounding <laughs> Nefertiti's tomb. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, here we are. It's the 100-year anniversary of the discovery of the tomb of King Tutankhamun. And now, very coincidentally, and I don't know if the skies right now are cloudy or clear over Egypt, but people are talking. Uh, it's been several weeks or months now that several different voices have been saying, we may be on the brink. It's a little chaotic to be telling a story about something that's about to be discovered that's not been discovered yet. In order to fully tell this story, I need to go back several years. Visits to the Tomb of King Tutankhamun are problematic. It is a very small space. And of course, everybody wants to see this tomb, even though you have to buy a special ticket and it is not particularly cheap. Everybody wants to do it and everybody's queuing to get that ticket to go into the tomb. Humans are fascinating germ bags. <laughs> Every time we breathe out, we breathe out bacteria. And so when you are standing in there in King Tut's tomb or in any ancient space like that, I mean, I always feel like a gigantic microbe. I try really hard not to breathe too hard, you know, just to be, to be still, to breathe really shallowly, not to put too many bacteria into that space. I mean, I want to see it, but I feel a little bad. Anyway, there is a realization among the managers in, in Egyptian antiquities that, uh, you know, it's very destructive to have all those people in that tomb every day. So there was a decision made some years ago to make a replica of the tomb. And there is a Spanish company called Factum Arte that was able to do that. And it was fascinating what they did. They took digital scans, not only of all of the paintings on all of the walls of the burial chamber, but they made additional scans of the texture of the walls. So what they did when they were building the replica of King Tut's tomb near Howard Carter's old dig house, what they did was they made sort of a skin that had all the paintings on it. And they married that skin to a replica of the texture of the walls. So you really did have a faithful replica of the tomb, not only in terms of the images, but in terms of all of the bumpy bits that the stones um, created, because this was carved out of, the, out of the stone of the Valley of the Kings. To their credit, Faktum Arte uploaded all of these digital files to their site online. And Nicholas Reeves, who is a very curious Egyptologist, started to have a look. And what he started to see in the textures of the North Wall, he found astonishing. He found in those textures what he thought were traces of a doorway. And that's how this idea all began. And then he started to look at other walls. And, you know, I think on the Western Wall, there may be, you know, traces, according to Nick, um, traces as well. And so you start to think, well, what could this be? You have to remember what happened to King Tut at the end of his life. He was a nine-year-old child when he came to the throne. He died when he was 19. We don't know quite how he died. He was surely not the most robust person on earth. He was, you know, very tiny. You look at his mummy, it's super frail. There was inbreeding in his family. Um, he probably had malaria. You know, so maybe he died from malaria. That's one theory. Another theory is that he was in some sort of an accident, broke his leg. It was a compound fracture. The wound got infected. There were no antibiotics. And, you know, poor teenage King Todd at the age of 19 drops dead. Well, you know, you, you don't anticipate that. 
And of course, ancient Egyptian kings started to build their tombs as soon as they took office. But of course, you didn't expect to die at 19, right? So King Tut and all of his courtiers probably thought he had years and years to construct a tomb. And so when he died at the age of 19, there wasn't anything ready. So they had to look around and say, what have we got? Where can we park this pharaoh for eternity? So Nick's idea was that Nefertiti, of course, she was a a big name. She had died before King Tut, probably had a very large tomb because she was a queen. And maybe there were a couple of rooms kind of left over that could be repurposed. And that is Nicholas's idea, that Nefertiti actually is behind the really, you know, large treasure-filled suites behind these four very modest rooms. I mean, people have looked at those four modest rooms that King Tut was buried in for years and said, you know, this is weird because this guy, okay, he was kind of a minor king in the sweep of ancient Egyptian history. I mean, if you look at it through a certain prism, I I find him a very pivotal figure, but he only ruled for 10 years and, you know, he was a teenager, so he probably didn't have a whole lot of agency. But still, you know, four tiny rooms, give me a break. He was a pharaoh, he should have had something bigger. Even Howard Carter looked at that north wall of the tomb and, you know, thought that it didn't really look quite right. So what Nick is proposing makes sense. Now, it might not be Nefertiti. There were other females and other bodies that we don't have from that time period. So there could be one of King Tut's maybe half-sisters or at least an in-law, Meritaten, might be behind there. Um, But, you know, other people say can't be, not possible. There have been several ground-penetrating radar scans of that area. The official word is that there's nothing there. I have to go with what the official word is, but as we know in archaeology, there are always new technologies that emerge that allow you to see things differently. And as a scientist, we should never say never. Are you really detached as a journalist just following these developments, or are there not some evenings you're putting your head down on your pillow going to sleep at night, and the mystery just kind of sucks you in and you think, I got to know. I got to know because that's how it gets sold to the public, that we've got to find out. (laughs) Well, of course, I would be thrilled. I would be beyond thrilled if there was somebody behind King Tut's tomb. And in fact, in some of my last days at National Geographic, um, I was interacting with television people who were all, you know, spun up about Nick's theory. And I said, look, you know, I, I won't be here. But if you end up photographing this... and the Count idea, me in. <laughs> well, and, and the idea was that, you know, they were going to snake maybe a fiber, see if they could snake a fiber optic cable into whatever was behind the tomb. And I said, when you do that, when the tomb is opened... Make sure you have the microphone open because one of the things that I think has sort of gotten lost in the great saga of Howard Carter discovering King Tut's tomb is this was a tomb that was opened after thousands of years. And it's not only the beautiful things that they saw, it's the modern air coming into the tomb, hitting all of these things that are made of wood. And there's noise because the furniture starts to crackle. How do you know this? I thought there's some place in Howard Carter's notes where, you know, somebody makes a mention of that. So I told the television guys, make sure your microphone is on, because if that happens, you know, that is one of the really great moments. I mean, that's one of the things that you learn when you're a journalist. It's not only what you see. I used to make a point of just stopping and you do a sound check. What am I hearing? And you do a smell check. What am I smelling? And what does the air feel like? Is it cold? Is it misty? Um, You know, can I smell a fire burning? I mean, you know, all those things. It's not only what you see. 
it's you have to use all of your senses. So yeah, you know, I mean, I, I would be thrilled if they find somebody behind King Tut's tomb. I don't lie awake thinking about it. One of the things that does keep me awake at night is why empires fall. On paper, ancient Egypt should not have fallen apart the way it did. It was strong, it was wealthy, it had connections all over the place. It had the Nile, which brought it every year with the rains in Ethiopia and the floods that came to Egypt. It brought that black volcanic soil from Ethiopia that spread over the fields of Egypt and fertilized the fields naturally. The ancient Egyptians called their land that that fertile black strip along the Nile, they called it Kemet, the black land. They had that happening every year. Their crops were abundant. The Nile was full of fish. The marshes on the banks of the Nile were full of ducks and geese and hippos and crocodiles and all sorts of marsh creatures. They had the deserts. They had the oases in the Western desert where crops could be grown all year round. They had mines in the Eastern desert, quarries that brought them granite stones to build pyramids and sarcophagi. They had turquoise mines in the Sinai. They had mines for precious stones. They had an easy way, a pretty easy way, to get across the eastern desert to the Red Sea so they could trade farther south with sub-Saharan Africa. They had connections with Nubia to the south, so also that they could get things from um, sub-Saharan Africa. They had connections all over the Mediterranean. There was not, there was no reason why ancient Egypt should have fallen apart. Why did it? So when you're there Potentially, it's evening. Potentially, you're going to sleep. Potentially, you're trying to organize your thoughts around this chaotic aspect of Egypt's past where all the order and all the expansive kingdom and all the power didn't exactly evaporate overnight, but went away. Fell apart, yes. And and I think, you know, so this is how archaeology is relevant. You know, this is why we study peoples from the past. If we can figure out why ancient Egypt fell apart, why Greece fell apart, why the Roman Empire fell apart, I think those things can inform our modern political landscape. We can apply things that we have learned and sort of keep our own civilization and political landscape from falling apart in exactly the same way. Our guest for this episode of Constant Wonder is Anne Williams. She's written about discoveries from the ancient world and the preservation of cultural heritage over an impressive career of three decades with National Geographic. She's the general editor of the recently released volume from National Geographic titled Treasures of Egypt, a legacy in photographs from the pyramids to Cleopatra. And in 2021, also from National Geographic, Lost Cities, Ancient Tombs, 100 Discoveries That Changed the World. In just a moment, we'll talk with Anne Williams about a very different sort of mummy, one found high in the Andes Mountains and discovered by happenstance, also a relic of a civilization that fell apart. And rather than having been found a century ago, as was King Tut, this mummified body was found relatively recently, in 1995. I don't rightly know how I would feel if I were to happen across an ancient corpse at 20,000 feet above sea level, or well, right at sea level, anywhere for that matter. Archaeomusicologists. They're the people who will have an educated sense about what music may have sounded like back in the day in ancient Egypt. We're talking about lutes and lyres, harps and drums. But you know, when I listen on YouTube to conjectural samples of prehistoric Egyptian music, rhythms, melodies, harmonies, well, that's when my inner skeptic kicks in and squirms a little because that was just so long ago. 
By comparison, far fewer generations have elapsed between the early Inca people and their living descendants today. So I can get on the bandwagon with what you're hearing right now, the kind of music performed for tourists in Cusco, Peru. This might actually be very close to bygone sounds of music up in the Andes. I can even imagine these sounds as something that a sacrificial maiden among the Inca would have heard. Maybe she would have liked this while she was still alive. Our guest Anne Williams got to cover this mummy story right when archaeologists were preserving some very famous frozen human remains. These were found not along the Nile in desert sands, but on an icy mountaintop in the New World. I, I don't know that I should call it a, I'll say a mummified, uh, uh, well, uh, was she wrapped, the, the Inca maiden at the mountain peak? She was naturally mummified. She was discovered in the late 1990s by Johann Reinhardt, who was, still is, one of the premier high-altitude archaeologists in the world. And he has done a lot of work in the mountains of South America and also in places like Nepal. He had come across this sacrificed young person and had been instrumental in sort of rescuing her because she had sort of tumbled out of a place where she had been buried. And he and his friend and colleague collected her and wrapped her up in sleeping bag mattresses and put her on the top of a bus and brought her back to the town of Arequipa, where she was put in a freezer to preserve her. Were they were they acting kind of like Howard Carter going to a site where they expected to find something? How did they stumble across this find? Well, they are high-altitude archaeologists, and this is earthquake territory. Maybe there was an earthquake, and um, this young person was buried in association with a ritual platform. And so she was, you know, maybe shaken out of that. Maybe there was a little bit of ice melt, um, so she sort of tumbled down a slope, and they were climbing and came across her. Just serendipity or just coincidence? They, they've... Yeah, and just coincidence. But the, but the thing about this young woman is that she was what the Inca called capacocha. She was sacrificed deliberately. So there's a phenomenon in which mountains like the Andes catch the clouds. Rain clouds are heavy. And when they hit mountains like the Andes, they dump their rain. So on one side of the mountains, it'll be lush because it gets a lot of rain. And then on the other side of the mountains, it's called a rain shadow. And it's desert because the clouds have dropped their load on the other side of the mountains. The ancient people like the Inca didn't quite understand it in that way, but they understood that the mountains brought rain. And so they did sacrifices to the mountain to ensure that the rains came and that they were able to produce their crops. And so they would choose young children who were on the edge of puberty, probably. And we don't exactly know what the criteria were, but you know, surely knowing human beings as we do, they probably picked children who were handsome and brought them to Cusco and dressed them very well and fed them very well. And then with great ceremony would take these children up to the mountain and probably fed them um, corn beer, chicha and coca leaves until the kids kind of, you know, fell asleep into a stupor um, and then, you know, hit them on the head and buried them as sacrifice to the gods. Now, you know, some people talk about this as if, you know, the children were terrified. I sort of look at it from a different prism. If you grow up in that culture, to be chosen to be a sacrifice to the gods, to go on and be with the gods is a great honor. And you are not terrified at all. You are looking forward to being with the gods and this great role that you're playing. Now, that's just my perspective. Uh, I don't happen to think these kids were terrified. I think they were, they were seeing this as an honor. 
they may not have been terrified, but this has got to be terrifying to you to consider the totality of what happened. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, from the mo- from the modern perspective, um, you know, it's quite sad. But, but put off 13... put off the journalistic detachment here. Doesn't this just turn your stomach and make you almost weep? It is very sad indeed. Sacrificed at thirteen years old. I mean, think of all the things that that person could have done, could have experienced, and could have contributed to society. Of course, from the modern perspective, we have to say this is very sad and you know heartbreaking. On the other hand, just like King Tut, this young woman has been a great ambassador for her culture. From the modern perspective, it's quite horrible. But think of the role that she has played. I mean, I am at the point in my life when I am thinking, what kind of legacy am I going to leave? And this young person left really quite a large legacy because in being able to find her, and being able to study her, and having her be preserved in the cold, in the ice, as a frozen ambassador from her culture. She has taught us so much about who she was, and what her culture was all about, and how these ceremonies played out. In that sense, she has played a great role and has left a a very large legacy, even though she only lived for 13 years. So in Egypt, you were outside when your photographer went in to document photographically the CT scan of King Tut. Were you left outside as well with the Inca maiden, or or were you able to get closer to this, this mummy? I was right in the middle of everything. This young person was wrapped in layers and layers and layers of beautifully woven textiles. And so the idea was to unwrap her in a laboratory setting where she would be preserved. It would be cold enough and we would do it in fits and spurts so that she would not defrost. So that's what we did. And I was there in the lab. It was blazing hot in Arequipa. It was in the falls. It was in their springtime and it was a very warm spring. So I had packed with all of my turtlenecks. So during the day, I was just sweating bullets. And then I'd go into the lab and you know, I'd be fine because the lab was cold. We had a photographer, Stephen Alvarez, who specializes in ancient cultures and in caves. We had Bill Conklin, who was a textile expert, and it was fabulous to hang out with him because he had learned about knitting and weaving at the knee of his grandmother. And so to talk to him about the textiles that we were unwrapping from this Ice Maiden, whose nickname became Juanita. The the Peruvians named her Juanita in honor of Johann Reinhardt. So to talk to Bill about these textiles, and he would pick up the edge of of one of these blankets, and he he would say, look here, you know, this is where they stopped weaving. And then they picked it up on the other side and began weaving back towards the center. And he said, you know, I learned about this stuff with my grandmother. And you could just see, you know, his hands were were feeling this. And he understood how this blanket had been created. And you could just see the love that he had for this blanket and for the things that his grandmother had taught him. It was really quite extraordinary. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is the Constant Wonder Podcast. Well, what you're saying here really sets us up nicely for the next place I want to go in this conversation with you, which is Alaska, because the story of the Yupik people and the, I want to say, Nunaluk uh, excavation site, here you have a people, continuity was broken with their past, and there's such enthusiasm now for kind of reconnecting with the ancient peoples, their ancestors, lived there on the coast of the Bering Sea, and with the thawing of the northern regions, some of these sites are now being exposed, excavated, and there's a whole relearning thing going on up there. Yes, that was my last feature story for National Geographic, and it is actually one of my favorites because it has so many levels to it. As the climate 
changes. The permafrost is thawing out. And what that means is the land is sinking at the same time the level of the Bering Sea is rising, taking off the front edge of ancient coastal sites like this. I think Nunalak has lost something more than 30 feet off the front edge of its site just because during winter storms, the Bering Sea comes along and just pounds the site That's one thing that's going on. The other thing that's going on is that because the land is sinking and the permafrost is melting, you're able to dig down and find material culture that's based on organic things. And this is very important because I think archaeologists forget Sometimes when they're making great pronouncements that just because you didn't have a material culture that was based on stone doesn't mean that your culture wasn't sophisticated. In fact, this culture was fabulously sophisticated. It used all of the organic stuff all around it. It used carved caribou antlers. They carved whale bones. They carved walrus tusks. They used grasses to make baskets. Um, The lead archaeologist there, Rick Connect, if you can find him on Facebook, he is right now conserving baskets that were woven in the mid-1600s and were preserved in the permafrost and have been excavated through his excellent work over the course of the last 10 years. And he's putting them on Facebook now because he's conserving them all. People like Rick Connect are rescuing these artifacts as fast as they possibly can. I mean, it really is a race. The, the story in National Geographic was called Racing the Thaw. And that's exactly what archaeologists are doing. Now, the other thing that's going on is that Rick is all about local folks using this as an opportunity to learn about their ancestors and to reanimate a generation of people who are sort of into smartphones and watching TV to reanimate them to learn the ancient cultures. So the local community is welcome to walk up and say, you know, I'd like to volunteer for the day. And Rick says, fine, here's a trowel, have at it. You know, and they get a little bit of training, of course, about how to do that. Archaeologists may be able to show the Yupik how to use a trowel at a dig, but certain members of the indigenous community there are already conversant with the kinds of objects they might discover there. For example, an exquisite Yupik doll that Anne acquired on this trip. It was not released by the thawing permafrost. It was made the traditional way, by a living Yupik woman. She still practices this time-honored craft. Many would call this object an Eskimo doll. It's about 12 inches high, complete with a parka and ornamental beadwork, beautiful small little gloves, a luxuriant fur fringe surrounding the hood. To see a photo of Anne's doll, just find us on Instagram. Anne is very keen on emphasizing how the Yupik are striving to keep the heritage of their ancestors alive wonderful woman who is now my friend, Misty Matthews, and she took me out to do all sorts of things. We picked crowberries because I I was there at the time when you have to pick berries, you have to can them, you have to freeze them. This is how you're going to survive. I spent a day, um, Misty and her brother went out and caught a whole bunch of salmon. It was salmon season. And we spent the day cutting up the salmon hanging them up to dry, preparing some of them to be frozen. This is what you're going to eat during the winter. Just a quick follow-up here. Misty's mother, her name is Grace, is the Yupik artisan who fashioned the doll, which clearly has become something of a personal treasure for Ann Williams. During the COVID-19 pandemic, a traditional Yupik song, Blessings in a Time of Crisis, no doubt sung by generation after generation of the indigenous Yupik in this area of Western Alaska. Well, this song spread around the world on YouTube, Facebook, and other platforms. It drew grateful comments from New York to New Zealand. Even this reaction from someone in France. I'm from Paris, sending my respect and heart energy 
Even through distance, we're connected. Your music has been playing in my yard. The drums resonate in the sky. Now, if only smells, not just sounds, could be shared on a podcast, we would try to make good on Ann Williams's journalistic pointer never to neglect the full range of sensory opportunities for good reporting. We'll be imagining the smell of sea oil in just a moment. But wherever the participants in this video were during the pandemic, they danced and sang and gave it their all. Check them out sometime online. Just search Blessings in a Time of Crisis. Survival in the time of crisis in ancient Nunalek took much more than just knowing how to fashion baskets or preserve berries and salmon. The really big story Anne Williams got to hear about at the archaeological site of Nunalek was the discovery there of hard evidence from a deadly raid and massacre. This has now been dated to the mid-1600s, round about the time the English took New Amsterdam from the Dutch who before that had taken the region from the Hudson River Indians, and then the English renaming the place New York. So I'm talking long before Lewis and Clark had crossed the continent to see the Pacific. This community was attacked in the mid-1600s, and they were attacked because what we now call Alaska was in what is called the Little Ice Age. And so it was increasingly difficult to get food and one Yupik community attacked this Nunanlek community for food. And so there were human remains in the frozen, thawing ruins of this community. Also from YouTube, a traditional Yupik war chant. It's a great example of how not just stories, but sounds from the ancient past have been preserved over generations of time. Voices, rhythms, melodies such as these may have marked that fateful day long ago in that era that is now coming loose from the permafrost at Nunalek. What's being found there has corroborated what Yupik descendants living today have long known, a story passed from parents to children. Rick Knecht and his associates have found not just some 60,000 artifacts of peaceful domestic life. I'm talking about dance masks and dolls, grass baskets, carved tusks. They've also found the remains of 28 people, mostly women, children, and older men, victims found tied with rope, face down, holes in the backs of their skulls, most likely from arrows or spears. These are the unlucky who didn't flee fast enough when attackers fell on them. Just as with the Inca Maiden in the high Andes, snow and ice here in Alaska have preserved a violent drama. But as Ann Williams has already indicated, the permafrost is also releasing not just the tragic story, but early Yupik tools and utensils of uneventful everyday life. Sort of the intimate, minute-by-minute details of what happened and how these people lived. They lived in sort of a you know, sod-covered house, and it was burnt, and people just, you know, dropped stuff in the middle of their everyday lives. So you have everything coming to light. You have bent wood bowls, you have baskets. Um, very sharp-eyed archaeologist when I was working there was able to pick out the scales from fish that had been deposited outside a house. A lot of what you see at the site, I mean, it is very brown and muddy, but everything sort of has a slick of seal oil because that was their butter. That was their olive oil. Um, that was what they used to make things yummy. It's all over the site and you see it when you're excavating. And so the fact that this community was attacked during the Bow and Arrow Wars, it just gives a snapshot of how people were living at that one time. And it gives us a date for that event that had been described in oral tradition that had been handed down from one generation to the next. 
So Anne, it's just frankly not common to find somebody who has such a breadth of experience doing the kind of work you do, and for so many years. I want to know from your perspective, it doesn't matter whether you're preparing a piece of writing about Egypt or about the Inca maiden mummy, maybe you're up at the Bering Sea in a place that's saturated with seal oil. Those are three places we've dealt with today. Help me get at the heart of what this game is, at least for you. I mean, uh, you've gone so far even in recent years as to learn how to read hieroglyphs. So a lot of people think about archaeology as just, you know, looking for treasures. But I think people who work in archaeology and people who cover archaeology have a responsibility to allow these sites and these people like Juanita and King Tut to be ambassadors for their ancient culture. One of the questions that I ask myself is, you know, what on earth was I doing? Well, so I think my role is I'm a translator. And I have been very lucky because I'm an archaeologist by training, journalist by trade. And that combination has allowed me to have a lot of adventures and meet a lot of interesting people and do a lot of really cool stuff. I have sort of adopted Egyptology as my great hobby. You know, and I never say that I'm an expert like a PhD. I happen to know a lot more than the average person walking down the streets of Washington, D.C. But in my hobby and, and sort of in my role as a cultural translator, what being able to read some ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs does for me is it allows me to be a better translator. Because when I'm walking through the landscape of ancient Egypt, all of those buildings, all of those tombs, it's like they have billboards on them. All of these inscriptions are billboards. And if you can read a little bit, you know, it's like being in the middle of Times Square and all those billboards going flash, 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 flash. You know what the ancient Egyptians were trying to tell us. Now, trying to tell us in an official way, you know, this wasn't like somebody, Hotep, making up his grocery list, right? Um, these were official proclamations. But the more you're able to read, the more you can interpret. I would also say that this is all part of being fascinated by an ancient culture. For those of us who are interested in ancient Egypt, the more we know, the more we want to know because it allows us to view ancient Egypt like a giant jigsaw puzzle. And when there's a new discovery, we are able to take that new piece of the puzzle and say, aha, I know where this piece goes. Clack, it goes right here. The more you know, the more you want to know. It's really fun to play the game of putting these new pieces in place. Which is why we won't give up on finding that tomb of Nefertiti. Absolutely. I'm waiting for the day. Such a joy to have a chance to visit with Anne Williams in this episode. If you've enjoyed what you've heard here, we've got a short bonus for you coming up. An excerpt from our earlier episode on the heyday of European Egyptomania. Stick around for that. Anne Williams is general editor of the recently released volume from National Geographic titled Treasures of Egypt, a legacy in photographs from the pyramids to Cleopatra. And in 2021, also from National Geographic, Lost Cities, Ancient Tombs, 100 Discoveries That Changed the World. We were only able to visit three of the many dozens of places that she's been and the stories that she's covered, but Nat Geo does cover vast tracts of territory, as you know. Our thanks to our production team for this episode, Tenery Taylor, Paige Crumperman Darrington, Colson Darrington, with Addie Mangum and Kevin West on sound design and members of our BYU Broadcasting sound design team. Don't forget to subscribe to Constant Wonder. Do it right now while you're at it. Leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. That's going to help us get word out. And in just a few seconds, something else we featured about antiquities and archaeology along the Nile. One of the world's foremost Egyptologists, Toby Wilkinson, joined with us for our Constant Wonders Season 2 episode on Egyptomania. Here's an excerpt from that conversation. He's talking about a character named Auguste Mariette, 
whose motives while digging around in Egypt were nothing if not complicated. He knows he has to excavate in the sands, but he hasn't got an official permit. So what does he do? He digs at night, secretly, and before dawn, recovers his tracks in the sand so that when the inspectors start their daily rounds, they won't suspect anything. And then when eventually he does start to find things, he even goes to the trouble of manufacturing fake antiquities to fob off the inspectors. Uh, and keep the real things for, for himself and for his employers. So there's a fair bit of skullduggery in, in these early days of Egyptology. <laughs> skullduggery is maybe putting it mildly. I mean, I'm just imagining the atmosphere here, because if you're doing this under cover of darkness, and if you're using subterfuge to get your work done, uh, that's high drama right there. And that kind of uh, even heightens the stakes in a way, I think. Uh, you're absolutely right. And I think the atmosphere on some of these uh, early digs must have been quite tense, not knowing whether you'd be discovered, not knowing whether you'd have to not only forfeit your excavation, but all the finds that you'd uh, uncovered. Uh, a, a lot of fairly basic things to have to deal with, plagues of locusts and, and droughts and storms and, and sandstorms and, and lack of fresh water. I mean, the, the conditions on an early excavation in Egypt were pretty harsh, and I think these early archaeologists were made of pretty strong stuff. You mentioned Mariette. He has quite an adventure with a particular temple that he tries to unearth or at least to excavate, if not to uncover it entirely. It's kind of a story that gets told next to the King Tut discovery story. But his find was, in, in some ways, uh, I, I can't say more spectacular, but equally spectacular. Well, it was astonishing. Um, Mariette was blessed with a, a ph photographic memory, and he had read extensively not only recent works on, on Egypt, but all the classical authors as well. And he knew from his knowledge of the classical authors that there were... Uh, myths and legends about a great temple, a great underground catacomb for the sacred bulls of, of Egypt, uh, known to the classical authors as the Serapeum. And he desperately wanted to discover this temple. And he was extraordinary at picking up clues and following them. And, and to cut a very long story short, he uh, devoted himself for uh, more than two years to this task of, of discovering the lost temple of, of the Serapeum. And it lay under the sands of Saqqara, just south of Cairo, uh, buried beneath meters and meters of, of sand. Um, but through sheer diligence and persistence, Mariette uncovered it. And it is one of the great wonders of the ancient world, um, fabled in classical times and, and equally impressive to visit today. So, yes, it's, it's been eclipsed to an extent by Tutankhamun's tomb, but it was and remains an extraordinary discovery. That's from Season 2, Episode 3, about Egyptomania and the Rosetta Stone. Give it a listen. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.